Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Today's episode is with Dick Russell. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and he just completed, and uh, next week we'll be releasing his biography of Robert Kennedy Jr. Good timing, huh? You probably just got done watching RFK Jr. over on the Joe Rogan Experience, and now I get to talk to a a multi-decade long friend of RFK Jr. and get to the bottom of who he really is. Particularly in my camp, my ideological brethren, we are highly skeptical of politicians, all politicians. I share your concerns. I share your uh, doubts. I do not trust these people. This is why I invited Mr. Russell, no relation, onto the show today to try and get to the bottom of who the hell is this guy? Is he a gun-grabbing commie? Or is he a freedom fighter that's going to abolish the CIA, the FBI, and Big Pharma? Let's find out. Uh, Really great conversation, uh, very interesting, very insightful as to who he is, and I came away feeling as if I know him a lot better, and particularly after the Joe Rogan uh, episode, I think that this will be a good addition to give you a a full view so you can judge for yourself. Uh, I've already made it quite clear. I think that RFK Jr. is probably our best hope on the presidential level of remedying some of these things that ail us. Uh, I'm also very doubtful that he will be given a fair shake. I think he's already receiving the Bernie Sanders treatment paired with kind of a Trump-esque treatment. So I'm not very optimistic that he'll actually win the presidency, but at a minimum, I would love to see him, uh, you know, just crush it in the polls and force debates, force, you know, bigger and bigger media uh, opportunities so that people can hear from this guy. Because he, what he has to say is really profound. Oftentimes, I don't agree with everything, obviously. Uh, He's not, he's not one of us, but when he talks about certain things, I think we can all sense a level of truth and passion that shines through. If you'd like to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. And if you want to pick up a shirt for Liberty Lockdown, Tower Gang, anything else, go to toplobster.com. Enjoy the interview. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. Today, I am joined by New York Times bestselling author Dick Russell. He has written a new one. This is a biography, I believe. It's the real RFK Jr. And uh, man, I am super interested to talk about this. I'm hardcore libertarian just to put my biases out there but uh from a libertarian perspective we are we are very hopeful that rfk jr is the real deal uh i don't think there's anyone walking the earth today in the political realm that has more reason to go after the cia and the fbi uh, but we'll, we'll maybe we'll get into that later uh let's first talk about uh you know why how do you know him why, why'd you write the book what what was the uh the reason for doing so yeah, well, you know, I've, I've known Bobby for uh, more than 20 years, and we got to know each other in the course of his environmental activism. There were two campaigns that we were involved in together, and I wrote books about. Uh, one was to save the Atlantic striped bass, uh, which was endangered at the time in the, in the 80s. I kind of led that campaign along the coast and got me interested in the environment. I mean, I never had been before. And then um, he was also very involved in, in an effort to, a successful effort to stop this industrial salt works from happening in at San Ignacio Lagoon in Baja, California, that was threatening to wipe out the pristine habitat of the gray whales. And so 
there are these friendly whales that come up to you in a little boat. They're amazing creatures. Uh, so we got to know each other better during that that period. And, and we just became working colleagues on different things over the years. Um, he didn't work with me directly in terms of, of the biography. I decided to write it um, last summer uh, because I was I've been following the, the, the media attacks on Bobby. You know, I mean, he'd been vilified and slandered and, you know, just torn apart for supposedly being anti-vax, which actually he's not. I can explain right. that in a minute. Um, and, and I just thought, you know, why not write something that will, will get across his life, the things he's been through, um, his, his incredible environmental advocacy over the years, his ability to work across party lines and, and get things done. So that, that's how it started. And at the time, uh, you know, I interviewed him quite a bit, uh, brought to his house. We both live in Los Angeles, you know, as I wrote it. But, um, you know, he, he, uh, he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't sanction it per se. You know, I mean, it was my biography to write and it wasn't either of our idea. But then when he became, you know, suddenly a presidential candidate, which he wasn't when I started writing the book, it kind of took on a new dimension. And, and I'm excited about the fact that since I know him well and I believe in uh, most of what he's talking about, uh, you know, that this biography will help help him in his, in his campaign. I, I think it probably will. Yeah, well, I haven't had the opportunity to read it, but I absolutely will. Um, I think he's probably the most interesting uh, new entry into the political landscape in a very long time. And I mean, Donald Trump was pretty interesting, but RFK Jr. is like, whoa, what's this, this guy is saying some stuff you are absolutely not allowed to say. Um, well, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, I like I like the old school environmentalist that was like, I'm going to prevent this corporation from wiping out this habitat. Like that, mm -hmm. that to me was, um, I didn't find any reason to oppose it. The, from the libertarian perspective, there's a lot of concern about the, the diehard belief in anthropogenic global warming and a belief that ultimately government, uh, you know, is the answer that we're going to have to have governments which are deeply in bed with corporations are going to solve this whereas most in my camp believe that innovation will ultimately be be the real cure uh is there I, i've heard him in interviews recently um you know kind of sound more as if he's in my camp where he's like no we're gonna have to innovate our way through this like you're not gonna you're not gonna empower some global government to you know force everyone to stop uh em emitting carbon across the globe uh, has that is that transition sincere when he talks like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I believe it is. I mean, <clears throat> certainly he, he believes, as I do, that climate change is real mm -hmm. and we have to do something about it. But he's certainly not a fan of these uh, high tech solutions like geoengineering, which would make a lot of money, for example, for Bill Gates. And, you know, solar and wind will go so far. But, you know, he's, he's looking for new new technologies, too, that, that can help with this. And, uh, you know, and I think the... As Bobby says, he's a he's a true free market capitalist. In other words, you know, he believes in in that, and he does not see that that's where we are as a society. You know, that we really have socialism for the rich, and um, you know, uh, that and we've got to do something about that. Agreed. I think he's not in favor of all the subsidies. You know, that big oil companies are getting, because that just allows them to keep on doing what they what they whatever they please. But and, and you know, he's, he certainly would, would like to see some the coal companies cut back emissions and and so on. But yeah, I mean, it's a nuanced view that I think makes a lot of sense. I do, too. I mean, it, the whole reason that, you know, some in my camp are concerned is because he he was uh, interviewed, I think it was five or six years ago. I don't know how long ago it was, uh, 
where he was saying that he would like to see people, I think he meant like corporate lawyers or lawyers for corporations that were responsible for, you know, major carbon emissions that lied about anthropogenic global warming. He said he'd like to see them locked up. Um, he's recently walked back those comments, but you know, anytime you have someone calling for the arrest of people based off of words, uh, people get a little nervous. Are, are you familiar with that clip? Yeah, I think I've seen it. And, you know, he wrote the <clears throat> introduction to, to, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which looked at uh, the, the big oil and, and coal moguls and, and what they, you know, how they knew all about what, what was happening back in 1989 and really didn't at the time put any investment into alternatives to, to uh, fossil fuels. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, he wrote the introduction to that uh, and, and the new edition called Climate in Crisis that came out later in paperback. Um, and you know, we both took a pretty hard line on on uh, on, on these companies and what they've been what they've been doing to people. But um, you know, so I, I, I. But as far as putting them in jail, I, yeah, I guess he has walked that back. But you know, there are lawsuits going on now. I mean, the, this organization called Our Children's Trust, you know, are, are suing uh, in in this different states, Oregon, and and I think the latest is in Montana. You know, to say, hey, you know, you guys got to do something about this because uh, our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. As guaranteed by the Constitution, is under threat, and mm. you know I think they're right. Okay, um, let's get into the the meat of this bone. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's there's many many angles I can take on this: the Fauci angle and the COVID and the lockdowns angle. Um, but let's let's start with his his father and his uncle. Uh, you know he he's been extraordinarily honest in his. Uh, perceptions as to what transpired in terms of you know CIA, FBI, whoever in the government was involved in the assassination of his family multiple times. Um, I, I think he's sincere in that belief. Um, well, first off, you've talked to him a lot. Do you think he's right? I do. And I have researched this myself thoroughly uh, about both his uncle and his father. And my first book was called The Man Who Knew Too Much. It was about the assassination of President Kennedy. And pointing to a, you know, a cabal that actually staged a coup d'état in 1963, and I, I, I spent a year and a half, two years as a journalist uh, on the trail back in 19, the 1970s, uncovering and talking to a lot of, of people that uh, knew quite a bit about what had happened. So this is interestingly, it's something I never talked about with Bobby for a long time. It was not the basis of our relationship, and it wasn't until I think 2013, which was the 50th anniversary that he started, you know, he, he knew that I'd written this book and, and I hadn't kept that a secret, but we just never talked about it. And, and he, That's wanted incredible. Know, he wanted to know what I knew. So, you know, it, it's an interesting uh, segue, I guess. Uh, and in recent years, he, he read a, a book called JFK and the Unspeakable, which is, is an incredible book because it, it outlines the, the how and the why of why so many people uh, hated his uncle, uh, who was indeed, you know, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, especially, changing things a big time in this country and uh you know the oil companies hated him the mob the cia i mean and the, the, the big military right wingers you know who wanted a nuclear war with cuba in which case we wouldn't even be here talking today right and uh <clears throat> so yeah and then he came to also and i have two chapters about this in, in the biography um you know came to realize that that sirhan uh, was not really ultimately responsible for his father's death. Yeah, he was in the pantry that night at the Ambassador Hotel in 68. He fired shots. But the fact is that his gun was, those shots did not hit President uh, Senator Kennedy. They were 
fired into the, either into other people or the wall, and uh, he was killed from behind. Um, somebody shooting him, you know, in the back of the head, which was likely a security guard who was suddenly hired that night by forces unknown. So, and he also, you know, began to study, and and I have studied it too. The the likelihood that Sirhan, uh, who he visited in prison recently, by the way, and that's a pretty astounding thing for someone like him to do, a family member. Amazing. Yeah, but he went to see him, and I write about that, and and uh, and found that not only you know was Sirhan, you know, expressing you know deep sadness for what had happened, but but also uh, saying he didn't remember anything, and he didn't remember at the trial. And the likelihood is that you know the CIA. Uh, and, the, and the military had techniques in those days that I'm sure have not gone away in a program called MK Ultra that they were you know studying how to create assassins through hypnosis and 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 use of drugs sometimes and mind control techniques and I think it's it's pretty likely that that's what we see in the case of Sirhan that he was sent into that pantry to to uh, not have any memory of firing those shots incredible yeah i mean i i saw his clip it's recently been taken down but uh rfk jr sat down with mike tyson of all people and and laid out this case and i had never heard um so much detail and, and it's quite clear that everything with rfk jr is extraordinarily detailed like it, yeah. when whenever he talks about it, you know no matter how controversial the topic is when he's talking about it he's got facts and details to back up his case you know he could still be wrong but the man is not just shooting from the hip. And I find it incredible that the media has managed to portray him as some sort of lunatic. Um, I think there's many reasons why they would be doing so. Uh, first and foremost, the fact that, you know, he seems to have a vendetta against the CIA, which anyone in his position ought to. Um, but also, you know, the real Anthony Fauci, the book that he wrote, you know, right in the teeth of COVID, uh, he really spoke out you know, passionately and bravely about what he thought was occurring and, and what Anthony Fauci's role had been both in the COVID hysteria as well as, you know, prior issues like, uh, you know, the AIDS crisis in the 80s. Man, he's, yeah. he's it's just a, a, an amazing, amazing arc to watch. Um, but the media is treating him as a crazy person. Um, is RFK Jr. crazy? Dick Russell. <laughs> he sure isn't. And, and as you say, I mean, he really studies. He loves science. Um, you know, he there's 2,700 some footnotes, I think, in the in the book he wrote, The Real Anthony Fauci. And, you know, he, so it's well documented. And, and that's there's just no denying that. Um, he'd known Fauci for years, um, you know, and, and, and uh, he was he was told me that he was shocked, actually, as he researched that book to uncover the fact that, you know, Fauci's rather uh, grim uh, role in the in the AIDS crisis, um, supporting the use of this this drug AZT that was actually killing more people than it was saving. Right. And then the experiments they were doing on foster kids uh, with, with AIDS drugs. And he, he had no idea about any of that and uh, wrote about it at, at some length in the book. And then he also had no idea how involved the CIA was in, in uh, pandemic response. In other words, all of these uh, event two from uh, finally event 201, it was called, but from the very, you know, back in the early 2000s after 9-11, you know, there, there were all these drills that were basically, you know, being set up by the CIA for how would we respond in the event of a, of a pandemic. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of strange stuff that was going on here and Fauci's connection to the 
biodefense industry, which a lot of people I'm sure aren't aware of. I mean, you know, the National Institutes of Health is his is is what he's been in charge of. You know, not in terms of the uh, the the vaccine part of it and all that for years, but you know, as of I think 2001, his budget uh, when he got involved again after 9/11 with biodefense went from uh, you know uh, went to 1.75 billion dollars I think within the next two years. So a tremendous amount of money was pouring into his agency from you know DARPA and CIA and all these other other groups. So. You know, I, I, he's certainly not crazy, and and um, he stamped that as he, he he said it before. And I, I like the way he puts it. He says, "Hey," he said, "You know, I've been trying to to protect uh, the waterways like the Hudson River to, for commercial fishermen for you know forty years. Nobody calls me anti-fish. You know, I'm 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 working to get pesticides out of food for about as long, and nobody calls me anti-food. Right. And the fact is that." His vaccine stance is is not just a blanket anti-vaccine. His kids were vaccinated. He used to get vaccinated himself. He was did not believe the COVID vaccines were were safe, and so he was speaking out against them because of the inadequacy of the testing and how fast it happened. Right. But you know he was he was uh, so he, he says he he's long called for safe vaccines. He says you know test them against a placebo when you're about to vaccinate our kids, and. Fauci admitted to him they've never done that. So that's the kind of thing he's calling for. And, and I don't think that's unreasonable. Do you? <laughs> Not at all. Um, I mean, at this point, I, I don't even mind if people are entirely anti-vax, to be honest, just because it, we've been lied to so much about the mRNA one and, and ultimately the mandates um, that were included in this most recent push uh, really violated our bodily autonomy in a way that's so egregious. I don't trust anybody involved in that industry at all anymore. Um, and I had never prior to, you know, the lockdowns, I had never really looked into vaccine injuries and things like that. It was just off my radar. Um, yeah. but you know, after reading, uh, RFK's book, uh, the real Anthony Fauci, I was like, all right, I got to look into this a little bit more. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions. I mean, there really are. And, and I mean, the, just the explosive growth in autism rates and whether or not that is connected to the massive amount of vaccinations that we do to all of our children. Um, I think it has to be answered, you know, and I don't, I don't have a conclusion just being honest. I don't, I don't have a conclusion at this point. Um, but when you see such a, a, you know, a parabolic rise in the cases of autism, it's like, well, it's something you know, like maybe, maybe we're just diagnosing it more readily. That's, that certainly it could, I mean, it could be a multitude of factors. Um, he, he talks about that quite a bit. Does he, does he come to a conclusion as to, you know, is it atrazine? What's he think? Do you know? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely has concluded there is a link between uh, the rise in autism, which now is an astoundingly one in 34 kids. A born with autism. Unreal. It was like one in 10,000, you know, 20 years ago or something. Right. I mean, the, the, it's just, where is that? So exactly as you say, where, where is that coming from? And, and in the past, and now thimerosal, which was a preservative, uh, mercury containing preservative that was used in vaccines, you know, until the, until finally they took, took thimerosal out of, of most of them, but not the flu vaccine. It's still in the flu vaccine. But, you know, the rise in autism paralleled uh, what so many mothers were coming to him and talking about it. He was, he was out there talking about the mercury from coal burning power plants. 
And suddenly all these mothers were coming up to him and saying, would you please look at mercury in, in vaccines? Because something's happened to my kid. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, this, they were desperate, but they were also onto something. And it started, you know, back in 2005, he wrote a, a huge piece for, for Rolling Stone and, and Salon um, about this base. The big thing that he revealed was there had been this meeting. It's called the Simpsonwood meeting. Uh, where the Centers for Disease Control in Georgia brought together, you know, 75 vaccine manufacturers to talk about how do we basically keep the lid on uh, about what's going on with uh, with with autism and, and mercury in vaccines. And uh, it was spelled out in transcripts. So he used those, <coughs> quoted from them. Uh, the article came out and boy, was he persona non grata with a lot of people after that. And, and, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, so the, there was a big campaign then by the media to just totally discredit that and say there was no way it could have happened. But, you know, that's, just, I mean, I'm not saying that all vaccine injury was caused by, you know, mercury and vaccines. I think there are other factors and he does too. Yeah. But, you know, to have it totally dismissed and have him suddenly blackballed, you know, as, as, a, as a crazy person who was taking on the, you know, the public health field, but he had nothing to do with it. I mean, you know, it was it's it was really something was going on here that was, was was not good and it's all about this merger of big media and corporate and state power in my view yes yeah it's uh uber fascism <laughs> it's yeah. it's uh i mean if people haven't woken up to it after the lockdown period i don't know i don't know what it'll take for them to see it but um yeah i i mean he makes really compelling arguments as to as to that you know, rapid, rapid increase in autism rates. And, and um, it seems to have happened shortly after I was born. So I feel like I dodged a bullet uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, it's, I, I forget what the vaccine schedule is, but I mean, we are just, just pumping our, you know, babies uh, filled with this stuff. And, and ultimately there's a liability shield, which I think even people on the left ought to be most outraged about you know that you would give a liability shield to a product that is ultimately mandated for this child to to then you know a few years later be able to be admitted into public schools um but they're they seem during the covid you know panic they seem to have done an incredible job of you know subduing the left and getting those people that from you know just five years ago my recollection was that most of the people that were anti-vax were actually on the left um and now it's basically if you are anti-vax, you can't be of the left. Right. Uh, do you think that was a concerted effort? Because that that it seemed it seemed like one to me. Yeah, I mean, I think so, and it's been building, you know, for years. I mean, you know, you refer to the liability issue, and and things started to change back in 1986, and and when a bill was passed in, in Congress to exempt um, vaccine manufacturers from liability for for vaccine injury, basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's when the floodgates opened. I mean, then they, they started giving, there were only three vaccines that used to be given to kids. You know, when I was growing up, it was very few. And of course, right. I'm an old guy, but it was just basically polio and a couple other things. But, but you know, so they started being able to not have to worry about, about liability for injuries. And, and at the same time, uh, back in the 80s, again, the, uh, the, 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 the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, opened the, the door to vaccine, you know, to farm big pharma, pharma companies being allowed to advertise on, right. on TV. And so now that's why you see it didn't happen before that period. And, and, and New Zealand is the only other country, by the way, that allows this. 
And uh, so, you know, they just blanket TV news every night with uh, pharma ads. And uh, we've seen it's a, almost a, it's almost every ad when you're watching the nightly news. It's yeah, incredible. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, some cars are selling and some booze, but I mean, yeah, it's right. just and, and again, you know, it, it's it's uh, so obviously the big media that are making a lot of advertising revenue from this are going to be more reluctant to do exposés of of the of that industry. Yeah. Well, and, and and Tucker Carlson was fired, not or, you know, not fired, but shelved not long after a, a monologue that really ripped into what what we're talking about right now, where it's like, yeah, of course, the news companies don't blast, you know, the pharma giants because they get 80 percent of their ad revenue comes from these these handful of companies. It's like you don't bite the hand that feeds. And, um, you know, it's just a, a financial imperative that you don't. And because it many of these people are struggling to stay afloat in some ways i don't even blame them um, but yeah. there is there is a sickness uh you know in the system and speaking of sicknesses rfk jr you know he's famously has uh you know some sort of speech or esophageal issue and i'm curious i don't i i have honestly i've never heard him say it explicitly but is that a is it from a, a flu vaccine other people have been saying this is that his belief well, it certainly wasn't for a long time, but he's come around to thinking because he's, I think he discovered in, in recent years that, that one of the known side effects listed for the flu vaccine is what's called spasmodic dysphonia. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty rare uh, disorder that affects the voice. And, um, you know, it makes it sound like he's almost choking some of the time. And right. now it's getting better. He's, he's doing some remedies that are, that are helping. And I think I've noticed an improvement uh, as he's done interviews since he announced for the for the, his campaign for the presidency a couple of months back. But um, so that's good because you know people are more better able to understand what he's saying. Sure. Um, but yeah, he did uh, he did tell me, and it's in the book, and he's spoken of it uh, since that he suspects. He said he used to go get the flu vaccine, you know, every year. It was right next door to his office on the Hudson River, and, and uh, when he was with Riverkeeper and. And uh, so he'd just go get it, you know, because everybody got it, and he thought. And, and now he looks back and sees that that's a side effect that's listed as a possibility and just wonders whether that could be linked to it. Well, I think it's a fair question, <laughs> I mean, especially given how, how rare it is. I mean, I've never, yeah. I've never heard anyone that has, um, you know, the spasmodic issue that he's dealing with. Um, is, it, is it a – does it, it seems painful when he's speaking. Is it? Do you know? You know, I, I don't think it's painful. I mean, okay. person physically painful. At least right. he's never said that. Okay, um, that's but, good. But but certainly it's it's uh, he hates it. You know, because he's he said once to me, he said, "Wow, you should have you should have heard me talk a couple of years ago." This was when he first got it, and that was the early two mm. thousands. We were out fishing one day, and and uh, he said, I, "God, I, I could talk like a like an African American preacher, you know." I mean, and he could. Right. You know? He's a tr an incredible speaker and and really charismatic and gets his points across. And and you know, he always speaks without notes. I mean, when he wow. gave that when he gave that campaign announcement in April in Boston, I was there. Uh, he he never he didn't have any piece of paper with him on the stage, and he talked for almost two hours. Astonishing. Outlining what he was going to try to do different, <laughs> and did a yeah. hell of a job. Well, that, yeah. that I, I listened to it on Twitter spaces and it was phenomenal. I mean, genuinely, it was one of the best political speeches I've ever heard. I had no idea he was doing it without notes because I was only able to hear the audio version. To yeah. know that is even more incredible. And 
I mean, he's a Kennedy for God's sake. Of course, he's a great orator. Uh, JFK, you know, Junior is uh, or JFK is uh, you know one of the most famous of all time. They have that that classic. I don't even know the name of the accent twang, but yeah, um, it's yeah yeah it's it's a tragedy that. Uh, you know, he's had his voice taken away to some extent, but it's even more of a tragedy that the media continues to suppress his voice, even after he's courageous enough to speak through the condition he's dealing with. Um, I mean, is it is it as simple as the media, you know, is just following the orders of the government in terms of like who they uplift and who they suppress? Or, or the, is the media making this decision of their own volition to suppress him because he will kill the golden goose that is their alliance with uh, Big Pharma. Uh, do you have any opinion as to that? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's probably unconscious, <laughs> an unconscious motivation, but certainly right. be there. You know, I don't, I don't think there's some grand conspiracy, except in the fact that, you know, the media kind of speak in the, the, the legacy media, as they're called now, uh, you know, the, the, the networks and the cable shows and the, the big papers like the New York Times, they kind of all speak in the same ad, you know, very dismissive voice of, of Bobby. And at first they thought when he entered the race, oh, you know, he's just going to, he's a gadfly, nothing's going to come of it. But I think right now that they're pretty scared. The, I mean, they're talking about the Democratic establishment, which Bobby has rightfully spoken about is, you know, suddenly there's, it's it's not the, it's not the, he's a, he calls himself a Kennedy Democrat, right? but that's not the party that exists anymore. No, I don't know it ain't. And, you know, so the, the fact that, uh, uh, there's all these neocons now in, in the government, you know, backing, uh, expanding the war in, in, in yeah. Ukraine. and On, on and, both sides of the aisle. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, he's discovering things and pointing them out. Like recently he went to the, uh, uh, we, we talked about this, uh, he went to the border, the, the U.S.-Mexico border in, in Arizona to get a sense of, you know, to talk to the people, the border officials, the people coming across. He speaks Spanish, you know, find out what he could about what's going on and and be able to, to craft a, a a good policy and wow he he said he told me uh, he, he you wouldn't believe what i saw there he said it was a humanitarian crisis that most of the people coming across which did, who did not have papers were were not from latin america really but from a lot of eastern european countries and they were being basically funded by and helped across by the the drug cartels in mexico and, uh, you know, I mean, who had any idea? I had I had never known about that. Right. And he saw it firsthand. And so he says, you know, what we need is a is a much more sensible border policy. We, we can't just have open borders. You know, we've got to have legal immigration and something's got to be done, you know, putting more money into that and, and stopping the this, uh, you know, juggernaut of, of illegal uh, activity that's going on there. And I'm sure Arizona is not alone. So, no, yeah. it's definitely not. Um, you know, I'm born and raised in California. I, I saw it firsthand myself growing up in San Diego. Um, you know, it wasn't that bad growing up, but man, Texas and Arizona are are feeling feeling it now. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned that it was Eastern Europeans that were you know many of the immigrants that were coming across the border. Uh, is that a are they refugees? Are they product of you know the war in Ukraine? Doesn't seem to be no. It's it's various countries, uh, including some some African countries. And but he gave wow. one example of a guy from somebody from Azerbaijan who was brought to Mexico City, and the cartels then got him to you know the next place before getting him across the border. Some you know somebody they could use, I guess, you know, to be involved in the big time in their trafficking. So interesting. Um, 
you know, it's heavy duty down there. What's going on? Yeah. Well, it sure is. Um, yeah, I think that's the other thing, you know, that I really love about RFK is that I, I'm, I, my, my sorrow is eternal that the left has given up on their role, or at least my perception of their role as being anti-war. Um, and it's one of the, you know, gravest psyops of my time that the left who protests the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which were, in my opinion, both illegal, um, you know, they're gone. They are long gone. And, and it has been replaced with, you know, some sort of corporate virtue signaling about trans issues. And, and that that's all that they now need to be totally silent um, as we quickly escalate towards World War III with the largest nuclear power on Earth, which is Russia. Um, right. I mean, it's extraordinarily dangerous, uh, aside from my own emotional injury of watching the left give up on any sort of anti-war beliefs. It's very, very dangerous to have no real passionate anti-war movement in this country as we send hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine and it's in this proxy war against Russia. Um, and RFK Jr., despite the fact that his son went over there and was allegedly a machine gunner on the front lines for a time, yeah. um, you know, he still seems to see this with the level of clarity that myself or Scott Horton, Dave Smith, Tom Woods, any of the, you know, libertarian anti-war people, um, you know, he seems to have that level of understanding and clarity as to what's transpiring over there. Is, is he, is he capable, if he were to be elected, is he capable of actually, you know, negotiating a peace there, do you think? Yeah, I, I think so, because he has a remarkable ability to talk to all different kinds of people. And in this case, well, he certainly does not support Putin and he knows that he's a he's a monster, you know, but but he understands because he, you know, he was a kid during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. And, you know, 90 miles from our shores, the Russians had put these nuclear weapons and we were awfully close to World War Three. And, you know, in a, it's not quite as the same thing, but you know, with we promised uh, Russia uh, back, I think, when Yeltsin came in, maybe when Gorbachev was still in power, that we were not going to expand NATO um, on their own border, and we totally, you know, betrayed that. I mean, yep. and and then then Ukraine wanted to become part of NATO, and and so it is in a sense understandable that you know, as the as these nuclear missiles, I, I forget what they're called, were, were put along the Ukraine border, which with the help of the American money. Uh, that that uh, the Russia might react like that, and and you know I, I think that uh, the U.S. would have, <laughs> yeah, the U.S. would have done that, and he he has firsthand experience with that as a, as a kid, right, uh, and has studied it you know a lot, so I think that he believes we we need peace uh, over there, and and that, that the Russians could be brought to the table, and uh, you know he's talked about opening a dialogue with with China, which does not exist. Um, which is important too, you know. In other Absolutely. words, that's what his that's what his family values really are. I mean, they were, you know, they were willing to to listen to negotiate. I mean, after the missile crisis, you know, his his father and his uncle uh, agreed would we take our bases out of Turkey, uh, you know, that and and uh, we would not invade Cuba. We would not continue to try to kill Fidel Castro, and. Uh, and then pretty soon after that, he was he was killed, JFK. So and Cuba had a lot to do with that. Not the Cuban government, but the anti-Castro Cuban exiles, CIA, the mafia, this cabal that got together to do it in the in the right wing. So um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think he would he would be able to. I, the thing that's interesting about him too is that he's I've seen in in his environmental battles, he's been willing to and successful in reaching out, you know, to people who couldn't stand him at first, like the the, the farmer state legislator in upstate New York, uh, who thought he was an enemy, and then had him up to his 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 meet his farm. And they ended up working together on this landmark watershed agreement to protect the New York water supply back in the 1990s. And in those days, Bobby was put on the cover of New York Magazine under the headline, The Kennedy Who Matters. (laughs) And so, you know, come on, has he really changed that much? I mean, is he suddenly at at the age of 69 a a pariah that we should scorn because he, he speaks out on issues like public health? I mean, give it, come on. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's absurd. And, yeah. But I just think it, it, it shows that if you're in pursuit of truth, uh, particularly truths that damage some of the corporate overlords as well as the, gov- or, you know, the government officials that benefit and many of them are elected through that, that graft, um, it's, it's very dangerous to do so. And I'm, I'm concerned for him. But before I, before I get into that uh, final question I want to ask you about, um, you know, many in my camp are very concerned about his Second Amendment stance, at least historically, his Second Amendment stance. And, um, you know, it's it's always mystified me, you know, those of the left that are able to recognize how, you know, corrupt and dangerous this government is, particularly someone who's had his father and his uncle assassinated by the state. Uh, how is it that they turn around and conclude, but the people shouldn't be armed. They, they shouldn't be able to defend themselves against this tyrannical government. He, it just, it's weird. It's honestly, like, it's just weird to me. Well, he doesn't say that, actually. He, he says he, he would not take people's guns away. No, I know he says that now, but in the past, I've heard that oh. he, was, he was much more, um, you know. That may I, be true. I don't really re- recall what he was talking about in the past about that. But, okay. But he's certainly not, not someone who would, uh, who would, you know, Got the Second Amendment. That's not where he's coming from. He just he talked about that really recently when I was with him. Yeah. No. I and I, so you that that shift is is real because I, yeah. I just I need to make sure because like that that for me is something that's a a non-starter. You know, it it's weird because RFK Jr. and I see this government very similarly in terms of like how extraordinarily corrupt and dangerous it is. Um, Maybe maybe you can just speak more broadly to the left. I don't. Are, are you even of the left? I should, yeah. shouldn't assume. Okay. Yeah, I am oh. actually. I, I can long considered myself a liberal democrat, but I'm. Let's say I've learned a lot through my friendship with him, and and studying what I have been studying lately, uh, talking about the biography. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I mean, he is certainly not somebody who advocates taking up guns against the government. He he, he says no. what we need is a peaceful revolution. I agree. He means that. And we I do. Agree. I think the system is broken. I think the two-party system is is completely corrupt and uh, uh, that we need something new. And we and it, it's got to start with telling the truth to the American people and going back to where this began, the, de- the creeping decay, I'll call it, which was with the assassination of his uncle. And and all, the, all four of the leaders of the 60s were cut down basically by the same force, not necessarily the same people. And that I'm talking about Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and the two right. Kennedys. Um, and I don't, you know, I was came of age then. I was I was in college and and radicalized, you know, by by what was going on. Uh, I was a Kansas kid, you know, but but uh, 
grew up all my whole life with sports and I was a sports writer and all of a sudden I woke up one day and there was a Vietnam War and there were hippies and there was a civil rights movement and you know I I changed and you know I think the thing that I have come to admire most about the Kennedys is um, certainly his father and his uncle is they were JFK was willing to change grow in office he wasn't somebody who came in with a fixed ideological point of view and then wouldn't get off that. You know, he changed because the times demanded it, because uh, the future demanded that that he do something different. And, uh, and then his father was, <clears throat> you know, based on uh, what he felt after his brother's death, which was just completely destroyed, even wondering were his policies maybe partly responsible for that, uh, and coming to the conclusion that, yeah, the CIA and the mob were likely behind this. Right. Um, but at the same time, he became a very compassionate man, you know, somebody who, who could talk to people in the poorest communities of Mississippi and, and, and feel how they felt and, and on the Native American reservations of this country. And, and he was going to change things. He was going to take this country in a more compassionate, equal direction. And I think that that's what Bobby Jr. really wants to do and has had that kind of experience also growing up that it was inculcated in him very young, including the need to debate you know, he, he's been saying what we, what we need in the country is, is we got to talk about these issues. We got to talk about <clears throat> public health. And why can't we? Uh, because that's how he grew up around the dinner table, you know, with his with his uh, his father encouraging debate, debate among the, the kids and what he's faced himself. You know, he didn't he didn't agree with his son, Connor, going off to Ukraine. He didn't even know about it. No, I know. Incredible. Connor didn't tell him, but he felt differently than his father based on what they've been talking about. And he, he decided, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And he went and did that and survived, thank God. And, and but, you know, that's the kind of thing that, uh, and Bobby said, I was just gratefully came home alive. And I respect his decisions to do what he was going to do. Yeah, well, I guess he has to respect it since he's on the same perilous path running for president. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, yeah. and that that's actually what I wanted to end with is that, um, you know, the Kennedys have a long track record of running afoul of the, of the state and being, in my opinion, assassinated for it. And, um, you know, I, I'm totally being sincere when I say this. I am concerned for him. I mean, the, the, the campaign that he's running, the things that he's saying, the, you know, the, the passion with which he speaks about it. I believe he's sincere, which I rarely feel that politicians are sincere. I believe RFK Jr. when he talks, I do. Um, and if he's serious about reforming or abolishing the FBI, the CIA, the the big pharma alliance with our government, the military industrial complexes, uh, consistent and persistent march towards World War III, uh, he is running afoul much as his uncle and his brother did of every aspect of the state, which is willing to do whatever it takes to keep their you know, scam a moving. Um, are you nervous? Well, sure. I mean, but I also know that he's got really good security. Good. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's top the top of the line, and he realizes the need for that. He's not comfortable with it really, but he knows it's got to happen. And you know, he said uh, he just feels that he didn't have any choice; that there was nobody else that he could see that could unite. The country and heal the divide in the way that he would certainly try to do. And so he said, you know, I'm going to die with my boots on. 
Uh, I'm going to fight for a better world. And, uh, you know, there's worse things than dying if that's what happens. So, you know, he, he doesn't want, to, want that to happen, and he's going to do everything he can to protect himself. And, I, God, I hope he does because I think he's, he's really the best, maybe the last hope we have to save this democracy. I, I agree with you. <laughs> it's it's crazy to even be saying that but i honestly agree with you i i think that and and for the record you know even though i'm not i don't come from the republican party i've never voted for a democrat in my lifetime i've always felt that uh you know they want too big of a state and they're always coming after gun gun rights um so for me that's a non-starter as a libertarian he would be the first if i were to cast a vote for him he would be the first democrat i've ever voted for and um i might i mean i'm, I'm, I'm really i'm deeply considering it and I, I just I just pray that he gets enough you know polling numbers that he forces uh, some sort of showdown between himself and Joe Biden. I think that Joe Biden is uh, you know basically a walking cadaver at this point, but he's the chosen one of the establishment. So it's like I don't know if they'll even allow them to debate, but it, it would be a tragedy if they don't. Uh, do you think Do you think he's got a chance? Yeah, I really do. I think that is. Even in these first two months, you know, he was polling at 20% uh, right out of the gate, uh, pretty much. And and he's going to, I think he's, he's gathering more people to uh, to hear his message. And, and is, is obviously, they, they know how sincere he is when they hear it. Some of the big tech moguls, like uh, the guy who founded Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey, have, have endorsed him. And he was on Elon Musk. I mean, you know, he's doing a lot of, actually more, probably, uh, podcasts on the, the other side of the aisle than, than the Democrats. Yes, but, he is. But I, you know, yeah, I, I think he's he's got a really a good shot, and uh, it, it's going to take some time. And obviously, you got to raise money to a lot of money to to do that kind of thing these days. And but I'm I'm hopeful, um, that, and I'm with him all the way. Absolutely. Well, Dick Russell, everybody, this has been an absolutely fantastic and super interesting conversation. Um, the real RFK Jr. is his book. Is is it available now? It's coming out. I think the publication date is the twentieth. So, it's it's available now for for pre-order on Amazon, and then it'll Perfect. get shipped on the okay. twentieth. Okay. If you guys are interested, please check the link in the description below. Um, Dick, absolutely appreciate this time, and uh, I, I appreciate that you're willing to to give us a little bit more insight into one of the most interesting political figures in a very very long time. And uh, let's hope we're both right and he can save this country before it implodes. <laughs> well, I hope so, too. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for watching. I wanted to thank you once again for leaving those five-star reviews over on Apple Podcasts. I know over like 400 of you have left it on Spotify. It doesn't give you an opportunity to write reviews there, but we're at a 4.9 out of five stars. So that means you guys are, are enjoying the show. And that means a lot to me. It really does help with the algorithm so that people can find me more readily and uh, get the get the word out wanted to read off three of the five-star reviews off of apple Podcasts. rob Berger says great breakdowns and guests a great show with great guests clint does an excellent job <clears throat> breaking down the issues and also asking the right questions of his guests to get a better understanding of the issues being discussed well thank you rob five stars joel dude 83 says very thoughtful and insightful conversation i appreciate the variety of guests with opposing views on this podcast thank you for being unapolog unapologetically honest in your pursuit of truth literally that's the whole point of this show i'm trying to figure out the truth and it's hard but uh i feel like we're making progress 
Aldeglen76 says, my favorite Liberty podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate the work Clint puts into these podcasts in a world where we can no longer trust any televised news. I feel like I can trust this podcast and what it has to offer. Well, thank you very much. That means a lot to me. I, I'm not right about everything. I'm sure I'm not, uh, but I am absolutely trying my best. And I'm glad that that shines through and that you guys feel the same. If you'd like to have me read your review, I do this about once a month. I'll read, you know, three or four of the five-star reviews. Uh, just go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. And you can have yours read, too. I'll catch you guys soon. Peace. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?